Let's close our eyes in prayer. Almighty God and merciful Father, you sent your Son to become poor for our sake so that we may receive his riches. Transform our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can be a people who are not just outwardly religious or privately religious, but who are eager to worship you and to do justice for the poor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here again, man. Uh, I spent some time putting some stuff together to talk about Pentecost Sunday, and we're, we've been going through a series when people were here before college let out or what our church was going to be about. And I, I kind of have some notes to go over it. I know you're not necessarily like know what it is we're trying to do by meeting here, even though we're pretty small, uh, like you can see. But uh, I'll kind of set some context for that. Uh, today in our church, it's... Pentecost Sunday, which is the last Sunday uh, of the Easter season. So we celebrate Easter for seven Sundays. It's the biggest season in the church calendar it's supposed to be. We don't celebrate it the way that we celebrate Christmas, um, but we should because it's actually, it actually takes that long to really uncover the implications of what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means. And the climax to that, the end of that, uh, is Pentecost, right? Um, and I know, I, I think you're Pentecostal, right? So, like, yeah, we all come from different traditions when it comes to Pentecost and receiving the Holy Spirit and how the gifts of the Holy Spirit operate and, um, you know, the way that we're supposed to exercise them. And I think that's actually unfortunate that uh, the Holy Spirit becomes an issue of division instead of a basis for unity. Because no matter what tradition we come from, when you go back to the Bible, when you go back to the text of the Bible and you look at it, you see that... It's that act of the Holy Spirit coming upon our hearts that binds us together as one community, no matter what our differences are. Uh, And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. So just very briefly, 50 days after Passover, uh, when you remember Israelite history, 50 days after Passover, the Israelites were freed from Egypt, right? And there was the Passover lamb that was slain. And so they put the blood on their doorpost and the angel of death passed over uh, their houses, and that's how they were able to escape from Egypt, uh, and they're led into the wilderness. And 50 days after that is actually when they're at Mount Sinai, uh, and Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. So that's actually where the term Pentecost means. It means 50 days after, and the Jews celebrated that. 50 days after they celebrate Pentecost, after they celebrate Passover, they celebrate Pentecost. And to them, what it meant was the coming down of the law. But if you look at the story in Exodus. It's actually a really sad story because Moses comes down and what are the Israelites doing? If you remember the story, they're worshiping the golden calf, right? Uh, And so he gets so angry, he calls his tribe, the Levites, to him, and they take out their swords and they kill 3,000 of the Israelites who are worshiping the golden calf. It's like a sad story. But when you look at Pentecost in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, what you see happening is... 50 days after the crucifixion of our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, 50 days, the Holy Spirit descends. So it's not the law this time, it's the Spirit of God descending upon believers 50 days after the crucifixion. And Peter preaches the first sermon of the church, and when he preaches, 3,000 people, the same amount of people who died in Israel, 3,000 people, their hearts are cut, they're convicted. And so then they, they repent and they're baptized. So it's just really cool to see uh, how 
this is what God has always been moving towards. He's always been moving towards creating a people who display his glory by showcasing his holiness, his justice. The people could not obey the law, but now they're given to spirit, the spirit so that they can fulfill the purposes of the law. And so one of the law's purposes back in the Old Testament was for Israel to be a community of social justice. And I think that's something a lot of people talk about, right? Radical justice, justice for the poor. Israel was supposed to be a community for that, but when you look at Israel's history, they were never able to be that kind of community. And what we want to be as a church are people who have received the Holy Spirit, and because of that, we have uh, our hearts transformed, and we ache and care and sacrifice for the poor. So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. There are a number of places throughout all of Scripture, from the laws of Israel to the sayings of the prophets to the letters of Paul, Peter, and James that show that the rule of God, the sovereignty of God, means liberation for the poor, radical justice for the poor, special concern for the poor. So today I'm just going to focus on three things. Um, first, God has always shown special care for the poor. That's clear in Scripture. Uh, second, in Christ, God shows solidarity with the poor, which is a little different from just caring about them. Solidarity is different. And finally, the gospel transforms our hearts toward the poor. So first, God has always shown special care for the poor. And again, this is shown throughout the scripture and even in the Old Testament. So first of all, God chooses the nation Israel, a nation of slaves. He brings them out of Egypt he leads them to Mount Sinai like we were talking about. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, he says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nations. Now, priests are those who stand in the gap. What is a priest? A priest is someone who stands in the gap between God and the common people. They intercede for the people before God. And God is saying the entire nation of Israel stands in the gap for the world before God. They pray for the world before God, and they show the world what God is like, in the same way that a priest is supposed to show the people what God is like. They're a nation of priests. And we see in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God commands Israel how to care for the poor as a nation of priests. This is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 17 to 22. You shall not deprive a resident immigrant or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment in pledge. Remember, you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord may, your God may bless you in all your undertakings. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It shall be for the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. When you gather the grapes from your vineyard, don't glean what is left. Leave it for the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. So what's going on here? Um, basically, Israel's an agricultural society, a farming society. And when an Israelite tends his farms, he's explicitly told, don't take everything from your field that you could from your harvest. Leave it behind on your farm for the poor to come and pick things that you've farmed. It's your stuff, but don't take all of it. Leave some for the poor to take. If you remember the story of Ruth, uh, she's told by Naomi to follow the workers of Boaz and to pick up the stuff that they drop. Well, Boaz there is obeying the law of God that's right here. Whenever they drop something, they're not supposed to go and get it 
get it back. They're supposed to leave it for the poor to come up after them and grab it up. Uh, when you get olives from the olive trees, don't strip it of every last olive. Leave some from the, for the immigrant, the orphan, the widow. When you get the grapes, don't take every single grape bunch. Leave some for the immigrant, the orphan, the widow. The Israelites are commanded to do this. And some of them may have thought the way that we would think, that's unfair. I'm the one breaking my back doing the farming. I'm the one that watered that olive tree. I'm the one who, uh, you know, was watering the grape vineyards, tending the vines. Why should the lazy poor person who has had nothing to do with working my fields, they've made mistakes, that's why they're poor. Why should they be able to live off my work? And God reminds them, do this because everything you have is a product of my grace. Don't forget, you had nothing when you were in Egypt. I gave you this land and I blessed you and so now you must use whatever I have blessed you with to bless other people. And so as you move forward in scripture, you see that over and over again, Israel is criticized because it doesn't obey God's laws concerning the poor. In Isaiah chapter 58, the Israelites are complaining to God because they are fasting and they're praying and they're being attacked by other nations and they don't feel like God is hearing them. They don't feel like God is with them. And so they're asking, why, why? And God responds through the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 58. Is such the fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself? Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast, is not this the fast that I choose? Loose the bonds of injustice, undo the thongs of the yoke, let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover them and don't hide yourself from your own kin. And in Isaiah 1, chapter, 11, uh, chapter 1, verse 11 and 16 to 17, God tells Israel that their sacrifices to him, their pleads to him are meaningless if they continue to oppress the poor. So this is what he says. What to me are your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls. I don't want the blood of lambs or goats. Wash yourselves, make, your, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. So you see over and over again, the reason why I'm going through all these verses just to kind of show and make my case Israel is outwardly following all these religious ceremonies to appease God. So we can make a show of going to church, you know, singing along, praying, doing all that stuff. And we're outwardly following all the cultural signs of religion, right? But God is still not pleased. God is angry with them because even though they are religious, they're not doing the purpose for which he call them together as a community, which is to do justice, especially justice for the poor. But then we see a change when it comes to the early church. While Israel was unable to display God's character to the nations by caring for the poor, the church was able to do that. Something had happened in their hearts so that they excelled in their generosity to the poor. So in Acts chapter 2, verses 44 to 45, Luke says this of the early church. All who believed were together and owned all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And in Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, Paul writes, 
when James and Peter and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was exactly what I was eager to do. So when we look at the scriptures as a whole, we see that God does not want a community of privately religious people. Uh, People who in their personal life say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but that doesn't affect the way that they live. Um, He wants us to worship him. And one of the ways that we're talking about today, one of the ways that we worship him is by understanding that everything we have, our families, our resources, our money, our time, our energy, they don't belong to us. They belong to him. And, he, and we're supposed to bring him glory with those things he's given us. And the way, this is what I'm trying to say, the way we give him glory is by sharing it with the poor. By sharing it, by giving it up, by sacrificing ourselves, by pouring ourselves out in the same way that Christ poured himself out for us. So, Israel was unable to do this high task God had set for them. But for some reason, the church was able to do it. So what happened that made the church able to love the poor where Israel failed? And answering that question brings us to the second point, that in the gospel of Christ, God shows solidarity with the poor. So solidarity is more than just caring about a poor person. Solidarity is more than just having compassion to someone. It means... Solidarity means identifying with someone. If, if I have solidarity with you, that means that I see you as part of me and I see myself as part of you. Of you. Your concerns become my concerns and my concerns become your, your concerns. Your problems are my problems. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, he's trying to persuade the church in Corinth to send funds to care for the poor in Jerusalem. And he's been going around to the different cities in Greece and he's asking for money to send to the poor in Jerusalem because there's some sort of disaster or famine or hardship we don't really know, making it very hard for the poor to survive. And the way he makes his case is really interesting for supporting the poor. Uh, This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 to 10. I don't say this as a command, but I am testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving my advice. It is appropriate for you who began last year not only to do something, but even to desire to do something. Paul's saying here, I'm not going to command you to give your money to the poor in Jerusalem. But if you know the gospel, if you really understand the gospel, then you will desire to give money for the poor in Jerusalem. And why is that? Because the gospel is this. Christ became poor for you so that you would become rich. Christ took on all your ugliness, all of your sin, all of your oppression and enslavement. He took that on upon himself so that you could have his beauty and his freedom and his prosperity. And that means that whenever you see the poor, your heart can't be the same the way it used to before you were saved. Your heart will melt at the sight of the poor because when you look at the face of the poor, you see Christ who became poor for us. So how did Christ become poor for us? Well, first of all, he became poor in the incarnation of God as man. 
So I don't know if you've ever thought about this or talked uh, with a Muslim friend about the idea that Jesus is God. But that's actually a hugely offensive idea to the Muslims. And that's because they think it's blasphemous. It's, it's like cursing God to say that he would condescend, that he would lower himself to the level of being a baby who is dependent on his mother for food. To be, for God to be a human being who has to eat and drink and get dirty and needs to shower and needs to like poop and pee, it's offensive to them to think that God would do that. And we Christians need to marvel at the humility of God to show solidarity with humankind, what that means for, such, for being itself, the ultimate being, to become one of us, to identify with us in such a way. I don't think we, we really think about that, what it means for God to condescend to our level. I mean, think even of the scene of Jesus being baptized at the River Jordan. Uh, Jesus is God, yet he's, wait, he's patiently waiting by the side of a muddy river that he created to be baptized by John the Baptist, who he also created. Why? Because he's showing solidarity with us. God the infinite wants to identify and participate in our life so strongly because by doing that, he knows that by participating with us, we will be able to identify and participate in his life. He is entering our poverty so that we can inherit his riches. And Christ's solidarity with us is nowhere more clear than on the cross. The infinite God by whom the entire universe was created uh, just for his pleasure, whole planets and suns and moons we'll never see, died in humiliation. He was condemned as a criminal by the people he loved and created. Jesus never had much money in his life when he was born. His family had to offer the cheap sacrifice at the temple, two doves. And during his ministry, he was basically homeless. And on the cross, we see pictures of Jesus, and the pictures usually have Jesus having a loincloth or underwear. But the Bible is clear. He died totally naked, totally exposed. Even the last bits of his clothing were taken from him. That's who we worship, a poor man, a homeless man, a naked man dying on a cross. He was so poor, there wasn't even a place for his body to be buried. A friend had to give up his own burial spot for Jesus to use. He gave up all the privileges and all the glory of his status as the Son of God, and he died totally abandoned and alone. So in every way possible, Jesus Christ became poor. In the deepest ways imaginable, he identified as the poor. He showed solidarity with the poor, also that he could make us, his people, rich. And that's why the early church was able to love the poor, while Israel was unable to. Because now, when the church sees anyone in need, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, the naked, the homeless, they see their Savior. Uh, they understood the meaning of Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. This is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left, and then the king will say to those at the right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, 
When was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And if we really understand that, we see that the basis on which Jesus says in Matthew 25, he is judging people, are how they treated the poor with whom he identifies. When we understand the gospel, then when we look at the face of the poor, we see Christ. And when we look at ourselves, we do not see a people who are deserving. We don't look at ourselves and be like, ah, we are so smart and blessed. We're, we're blessed because we're so good. Uh, instead, we recognize that we're blessed. Our riches are only a product of his grace, his mercy. He took on our poverty so that we can be rich. We did not earn any of our riches. And so we recognize we're no better than anyone else. All we deserve is condemnation, but in spite of that, everything we've received is grace. I mean, think about that. Did you choose your parents? You probably didn't. I didn't. And yet, they have been a huge blessing to us, right? Our families, they've been a blessing to us. Our friends, so many things that we did not choose. Where we were born in the United States of America, we didn't choose that. These are all products of grace. But what God is saying is that these blessings that you've been given, these privileges you've been given from the very beginning of your life are not just for you to enjoy. They're for you to share. They're, for you, they're opportunities for you to sacrifice the same way that Jesus, who was blessed with the entire universe from the beginning of existence, sacrificed them for our sake. So the early church saw the beauty and the meaning of God's solidarity with the poor in the gospel. And understanding their gospel is how our hearts will be transformed toward the poor by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like the early church in Acts. And this has all kinds of real-world uh, implications. Because if this is true, if we really believe the gospel of a God who became poor so we could be rich, here's what we can't do as Christians. We can't justify to ourselves anymore why we should not help the poor. So, you know, sometimes you, you'll hear other people saying stuff like, well, I earned this, they don't deserve my help. As a Christian, you know, when you survey the cross, everything you have is not earned, but given to you as a gift. And you may have heard people say, well, they made bad decisions, that's why they're poor. But how about us? I think when we examine our own lives, we see that over and over and over again, we make bad choices, but God in his grace still protects us, preserves us, and showers us with blessings. So you can't say to yourself, oh, but helping the poor might cost me something. Maybe it will hurt my industry, my job, my paycheck, my friend circle. It may mean that I have to have less so that they can have more, and that's not fair. But you can't think that as a Christian anymore because Christ paid the cost of humiliation, death, and separation from the Father so we could be saved. He became less so that we could become more. So you can't say to yourself they're going to waste your help. Uh, you can't say to yourself there's no point. They're going to continue to make bad choices and they'll stay poor because God never thought that way about us. Uh, he doesn't save us by grace and say, well, you know, Brian is going to continue to sin. And that's why it's a waste of my grace to save him. That's not the way God thinks. And we're, the reason why the Holy Spirit is given to us is because that's not a human logic. That way of thinking is not a human logic. The Holy Spirit is given to us so that we will think with the mind of Christ. 
So we can disagree on the, the best way to help the poor, but as Christians, we have to agree on the necessity of helping the poor. That is what we are called to in Scripture. That is the, the community that God has been building, even from the time of Israel. This is a loving act of worship to our King, Jesus Christ. So how can we, as believers, put this into practice, and how can, as a church, we advance social justice? There are a lot of programs we could start and talk about, but at the core is this idea that the Holy Spirit needs to come into your heart to give you the heart of Jesus. Though he was God, Jesus entered into pain for you. He sacrificed for you. And if you really have his spirit in your heart, then you're going to not just be willing, but be eager to enter into pain and sacrifice for other people. So it won't be convenient to care for the poor or to work for the poor. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to make you popular. Uh, you won't, maybe you don't have money to sacrifice, but you can be sacrificing your time. You can be sacrificing your energy. You can be sacrificing your emotional well-being and your attention to care for the poor. And if you're not, and if like Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians, if you don't even feel the inclination to do so, to sacrifice for the poor, then you have to really ask yourself, is the spirit of Pentecost really within me? Is the spirit of Christ within me if I don't even have this desire for the poor? The gospel is not that we are saved because we love the poor, but the gospel is that when we look at the Son of God who gave up his riches and became poor we, so that we who are poor can inherit his riches, then our hearts are transformed by the spirit and we are able to do justice for the poor and display the love of God to the world. So let's be those kinds of Christians. Uh, let's Stand together and affirm the uh, creed. It's in the liturgy.